morning and happy new year. My name is Will, one of the servants here at New Life Press. And uh, as we worship together on this first Sunday, we are continuing along in our series in the book of Nehemiah. And I'm going to attempt actually to preach on essentially a chapter and a half. So the entire chapter 11 to the first 26 verses of chapter 12. But for our scripture reading, just as a way of introduction, I'm just going to read the first two verses of chapter 11. So if you could kindly stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, We do this as an act of worship, and God's word once again comes to us in Nehemiah chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 2. As I hear the word of God here today, may may it bless you, may it encourage you this morning, starting with verse 1. Now the leaders of the people uh, lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And this is God's word. Uh, You may take your seats at this time. Well, if you've been joining us uh, in the recent weeks as we've been studying this wonderful book of Nehemiah, uh, then you know that what we're trying to capture in this book is that Nehemiah holds the key to a restored and uh, rebuilt life in Jesus Christ. A rebuilt life meaning it's the key to a life of fulfillment, a life of satisfaction, uh, a, the key to a life of purpose and meaning. It's a, a picture of what life could look like restored and rebuilt in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A life in which we realize that living before God in a covenantal relationship as God is our Father is the, the baseline foundational truth and reality that will unlock the joys and satisfaction of life. And that's what we've been looking here, looking at in the book of Uh, Nehemiah. And since chapter 7, we've been basically trying to convey this idea that uh, even though the the project at hand is really about rebuilding the wall of the temple, what God is really doing is trying to rebuild a people for himself. And since chapter 7, what we essentially have is Nehemiah, this wonderful leader, has rebuilt the wall of the temple, but trying to figure out how do I populate the city? Now, how do you get all these families that are living in the countryside and convince them to move into the city. And he's been faced with this practical issue of how to populate the city ever since chapter 7, because if Jerusalem and the temple were to be sustained and to thrive and to grow, then we know that it had a particular place in God's plan of history, because Jerusalem would be the city of God, other nations would hear the gospel through Jerusalem, God would sustain his people through the next centuries all the way into the New Testament, where we finally see the fulfillment of all this in Jesus Christ, and then there's the church like us here today. So it's foundational to the story of God's plan and his story of building a people for himself. And we see that Nehemiah dedicates now, very practically, a strategy to repopulate the city to carry on the church. In other words, friends, once again, we see that Nehemiah begins to serve his people as a civil engineer or as an urban planner. And I want to look at these verses, which has a bunch of different lists of people. And I'm going to try to take it from a different angle. Because the simple way to address these lists and these names of the people could be simply uh, talking, and rightfully so, about the community of God. Talking about gifts, talking about diversity, and we'll touch base base upon that. But I'm going to try to tackle this uh, from a slightly different angle along three different lines. One, I'm just going to convey, one, that lists and names are really important. So never gloss over the Bible when it has genealogies and has names. Listed names are really important. And I'm going to try to convince you why. Secondly, 
Transitions in life will reveal what you're really about. Transitions in life will show you what you're made of. It's revealing. And then last, uh, humility. Humility can be life-giving. Another way to think about this is that uh, humility will let you be self-aware about who you are and your place in this world. And when you're self-aware and you're comfortable with your identity, then uh, it could be life-giving. It, could be, it feels like you're set free in life. And so those are three angles that we're going to look at this. One, listen names are important. Secondly, transitions, uh, they can be uh, revealing. And then humility can be life-giving. So let's consider this together. Uh, listen names are important. Now, sometimes they say in a difficult passage, uh, in the Song of Solomon, the book of Revelation, uh, maybe chapter 11, uh, the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. So don't lose sight of the plain things because the plain things can be the main things. And the plain thing we see here is that lists and names are important. There are a lot of names here. There's uh, a lot of different um, tribes and family names that are represented, but it's actually quite simple. It's really organized in a very simple manner. So let me try to make my case here. The first 24 verses of chapter 11 are all about Jerusalem. And if you look back at verse 4 of chapter 11, it says, And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin. And so it begins this introduction of people saying there are sons of Judah and sons of Benjamin. And then there's listed in verse 4 the sons of Judah, and then in verse 7, the sons of Benjamin. And then there are the priests that come later in verse 10. And then the Levites that come in verse 15. And then the gatekeepers that come in verse 19. And so basically, you have this pattern in the first 24 verses. Judah, Benjamin, priest, Levites, and gatekeepers. And that's basically the entire chapter of the list. That's the pattern. Judah, Benjamin, priests, Levites, and the gatekeepers. It's repeated again when you drop down uh, to verse 25, and the focus then shifts from Jerusalem to the villages, but you see the same pattern. It's first Judah in verse 25, because some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages. Then Benjamin comes on to the scene in verse 31. The people of Benjamin also lived in Geba onward. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, you have the priest, the Levites in verse 8, the gatekeepers in verse 12, verse 25, and then you have the pattern again, Judah, Benjamin, priest, Levites, and gatekeepers. So there's a lot of names here, but it's overall not that complicated because it's essentially giving us a very ordinary and very plain list. Now, what's the point of this? Well, really quickly, the people of God are ordinary. The people of God are organized. But if you look at these groups here, it says Judah and Benjamin and the tribes, that, force, that forms the core of God's church. God will be faithful to the tribe of Judah. God will be faithful to the tribe of Benjamin. And you fast forward all the way to the New Testament. The core of God's people and his faithfulness to the covenant line of his people begins with Judah, begins with Benjamin. But the other list here you see are priests, there's Levites, and their gatekeepers. Now, they're all different functions of the temple, which tells you at the end of the day, we can engage the world, we can enjoy the world, vacation is really good, be good at what you do at work, have a lot of friends, evangelize. But at the end of the day, why God's people exist is because these different responsibilities of the priests, Levites, and gatekeepers tells us that at the core, we're a worshiping community. These are people who have to take care of the temple, have to conduct the services. At the end of the day, when you rebuild and restore God's people, we're worshiping, 
covenantal, God-honoring, Christ-centered people of God. Very ordinary, very plain. You see, friends, lists are not just a census, but when you read lists of people, um, it brings recognition, it brings history, and it can elicit a lot of emotion. Lists do that even for people like you and I today. That's why, I don't know if they still have this in in high school, but that's why you love it when our students and our children, uh, they get onto the honor roll. Or you love it in college where uh, you finally made the dean's list. Or even back when I was in the ninth grade, and uh, I was a, a freshman at Tom's River High School North in New Jersey, and one of the things I wanted to do was to try out for my freshman basketball team, and there was 120 guys for a week-long tryout, and what they're planning to do is to take 15 guys out of the 120, and then you take the 15 guys, and they practice another week, and out of the 15, they choose the 12. It almost felt like Jesus and the apostles, 12 guys to form this new freshman team. So I just took a step of faith, and I went out there, and I practiced for the first week, and I went on after the one week was done on Monday morning to go by the gym and to see if my name was on that list, and by God's mercy and by God's grace, I was one of the 15 guys I was picked on that team, and you know what? I felt so good and so proud of myself. And then we practiced another week, and I was completely lost. I mean, I knew all the guys on the team. They played in middle school. They could run the plays. I had no idea what I was doing. So after a week, I went back on the next Monday to look up on the list by the gym, and I'm praying, I I hope I'm on the list, one of the 12. And then I looked up on that list, and my name wasn't there. And I thought, maybe they miscounted. Maybe there's only 11. But there are 12 names up there, and I got cut. You see, that might be a story more about achievement. But nevertheless, names carry a sense of recognition. They carry an emotion. If you've ever been to the 9-11 memorial down in downtown Manhattan, and you look at the list of the people who passed away in that tragic accident on 9-11, it's going to be heavy. They'll show you a history. Each name has a story. If you've ever been to the Holocaust Museum in D.C., and you read the names, and I didn't know any of those names, but you read the names of the victims of the Holocaust, you could feel the gravity. There's a heaviness, a weightiness to it. There's a story. There's a history there. And in the same way, when you read these names, I would like to imagine that if you're a Jewish person that lived back in the days of Nehemiah and you heard these names, there's a history there. There's your ancestors. There's a story in which God was faithful to the generations in the past, to the people of the past. And each one of these names has a story, and it elicits an emotion, and there's a recognition there. That's why names and lists, they have a purpose and plan. Isn't it interesting that when you read the Gospel of Matthew, that the Gospel essentially begins with the genealogy? You fast forward hundreds of years, and Jesus wants to introduce himself through a genealogy with names and a list. And he's saying, no longer is biology and DNA going to be the extension of my family tree, but by the grace of Jesus Christ, grace and forgiveness is going to be the reason and the way that my family extends to the ends of the earth. Names and lists are important, so when we look at this list, we may not know anyone by their name. But this history in Nehemiah 11, that's our history, because it brings us all the way to the genealogy of Jesus. And then we see that our names, by faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, our names are engrafted into the book of life 
because this story is our story, and we've been drawn into this story of God's plan and redemption. This is our hope, and this is our dream. Lists and names are important. And it has, before we go to the second point, a very simple application, at least to know this, that you should be intentional and very careful about how you talk to people that may not know Jesus, whether it's at school, at the coffee shop, at work, you bump into someone on the highway, you should be very careful about how you talk to somebody that you don't know. And the reason is because you never know under God's plan if the reason that you're having this conversation with the guy that you just met, a stranger over at Starbucks, the guy that you have a conversation to share a little bit about your faith, you never know. That guy's name may be the next name engrafted into the history books of God's genealogy and his family, the invite list, the people that God has used you to gather people to himself as a church of Jesus Christ. So names and lists are important. But secondly, transitions are revealing. They can reveal what you're made of. They can show you what your true faith is. Transitions can show the stuff that you're made of. Transitions can make you and fortify you. Transitions can break you in life. So let's look at verses 1 to 2 again. Verses 1 to 2, let me read that again. It says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. Now nine out of ten remained in other towns, and the people blessed all the men who were willing, willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So we have a transition here. That was the introduction of this entire passage. Now you have to understand, today the city is viewed very differently than it was for the people in Jerusalem in Nehemiah 11. The city today seems fun. It's exciting. The best food is in the city. You meet people. It's the center of culture and arts. It's the best chance to build a career. I know things are changing because of the way work-life balance is changing with COVID, but at the end of the day, the city represented this. So in some ways, people really believe if you capture the city, you can capture the culture. And that's why when you think about urban planning and trying to build a city, it's very different from Nehemiah. Nehemiah just says, remember your covenant, God, we got to worship and take care of the temple. But what I read very simplistically is that if you want to build a city today, it's all about trying to bring money and taxes into the city. you got to have clubs, you got to have bars, you got to have arts and culture, you have to have people to come into the city, have nice places to live, and then you have the problem of gentrification. That's another issue. But the point is, the city back then is viewed very differently from the city today. It wasn't like that for people of Nehemiah's day. Jerusalem wasn't attractive. It wasn't San Francisco. It wasn't Chicago. It wasn't New York. You know, to move into that city for the people in verses 1 and 2 came at a deep personal cost. There was a deep sacrifice. There was high anxiety. Most families lived in the farm outside of the city. Their lives depended upon the land. There were farmers. There was an agrarian culture. Their daily existence was about the land. There was routine. There was normality. Normality. There was relationships and community. Everything was safe and familiar. We like that. That's comfort. For most of them, moving to the city would have been a traumatic experience. From expansive country life to constrained city life. They would leave everything for a radically different setting in life with an immense amount of uncertainty. And they would do this because they simply believed in God. They trusted him and God was their anchor. So it revealed what these people are about. It's interesting that they figured out God's will by casting lots. That's sort of like throwing the dice. But they didn't actually have any complaints. They didn't grumble, at least as far as you know. They figured out one out of 10, I'm going to tithe 10% of the population to go to the city, and they just obeyed. 
is quite remarkable. It's amazing that they just did this. And then verse 2, it's possible that there are further volunteers that willingly offered to live in Jerusalem too. So you don't know. There could have been a lot of people, and they did this because they believed in the promises of God, understood themselves as a people of God. It revealed what they really believed and trusted in. Transitions. You see, friends, transitions are, they, they can be revealing. Some of you just, uh, understandably, maybe most of us, we don't like transition. You know, when churches uh, in New Life Press transitions into a different vision and a different ethos, uh, when your own life transitions because you're going from high school to college, and perhaps, in my, in my opinion, one of the hardest transitions in life is going to be from college into working life. In the first two years of postgraduate uh, life, a lot of times I feel like singles going through a period of depression. That's the transition. You transition from single life to married life, married life to family life, and you can transition in ways that you didn't volunteer for. This is like COVID-19. You can transition in life when you lose a family member or you find out that you actually have cancer or you have a big disease. Transitions can be voluntary or involuntary. And some of you, understandably, when you think about transitions, it causes a lot of anxiety. It causes a lot of uncertainty, a lot of stress. But then again, maybe it's to some of the younger people, or maybe this is just like you. Sometimes transitions offer you excitement. You love transition. You're aspirational. You desperately want change. So it's interesting. Transitions reveal your personality. You may get anxious at the prospect of transition, or you may be somebody that always needs to be in transition because you're a restless soul. You desperately want change. And in some ways, transition helps you to understand, even for some of us, the nature and the idea, the reality of a midlife crisis. Because midlife crisis is the idea that you entered into your last transition and that you begin to worry about your life because you realize there may be no more transition in life. And you begin to reflect, what did my life mean? What did I accomplish? You see, friends, through all of this, transitions in life reveal what you believe in, what you're made of, your identity, what grounds your life, what roots your life, what anchors your life. Transitions are a part of life. Transitions in life are non-discriminatory. There's a, a Harvard uh, Business School professor, Arthur Brooks, who wrote an article in The Atlantic, and this is what he said about transitions. He's just thinking about it from a sociological uh, business uh, perception and a perspective on humanity. It says, transitions feel like, abnormal, like an abnormal disruption to life, but in fact, they are a predictable and integral part of it. While each change may be novel, major life transitions happen with clock-like regularity. It's part of who we are. So he goes on and writes in the article, life is one long string of transitions, in fact. And he quotes this other author, Bruce Feiler, who wrote a book called Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change at Any Age. And in this book, he basically argues that after interviewing hundreds of people about transitions, he found that a major change in life occurs on average every 12 to 18 months. There are huge ones, which Feiler likes to call life quakes. That happened three to five times in a person's life. So you have a change and transition every 12 to 18 months, and then you have these life quakes that happen three to five times in your life. Life quakes are things like getting married, having a child, losing a loved one. Life quakes are voluntary and involuntary. You welcome them and you don't welcome them. It could be something, a life quake could be a career transition because you got laid off. You could have a threatening illness. 
Lifequakes are something that are fundamentally a transition in your life that will reveal what you got, what you believe in, where your faith is in. You know what, friends? COVID-19 is a lifequake. We're going through this for two years, and it changes our society, changes our culture, and it reveals what you're about. It reveals what your church is about. It'll show where your life is anchored, because if it's not rooted in Jesus, then you're going to go and spiral downward, understandably so and empathetically so, but it reveals something about you. And as uniquely and as uncomfortable as COVID is, it isn't so different from other life transitions when you think about it in the big perspective. And honestly, if truth be told, according to this article, and I agree with Arthur Brooks, COVID-19 may not be the most difficult transition that you're even facing today. Almost every day I hear from people who are quietly struggling through ordinary transitions such as divorce, the death of a loved one, a forced retirement, an illness, transition from being single to being married, transition from going to college into working force. Transition from high school into college, all kinds of transitions that we face. Some are voluntary, some are not. Some of these transitions are traumatic because you've been victimized. Some of these transitions are because you've been taken advantage of, and you've been victimized in a way that has been spiritually and mentally and psychologically traumatizing. It involves adapting to new surroundings and changing your self-conception. Psychologists even have a name for this sort of transition. They call it liminality. Liminality. I had to look up that word on dictionary.com. Uh, but basically, you know, scholars at Rice University NC at a business school in France say liminality is basically being betwixt and between social roles and identities. In other words, liminality means that you are neither in the state that you left nor completely in your new state, at least not mentally and emotionally. And this provokes something of an identity crisis. It raises a question of who am I? It's emotionally destabilizing. That's why in verses 1 to 2, it was, according to modern-day psychologists, a state of liminality because they're leaving their place as a scattered people of God as farmers, and now they're trying to figure out, can I make it as a holy people of God reinstituted as city people in the city of Jerusalem? In every transition that you go through, in some ways, in common grace, your human experience means that you're going through an experience of an identity crisis, a liminality. You're no longer who you are, even if you move to a different state, even if you move to a different city. And this is the point, friends. Now, the articles that suggest this and some of the books that suggest this basically say uh, transitions are unavoidable, so just deal with it. You know, lean into it a little bit. Let it happen and try to process this and try to use it because you could become a better person. I don't disagree with that, but I don't think it goes deep enough. I don't think it's always easy just to lean into this. I don't think it's easy just to say, changes and transitions are going to happen. I can't control life, so let me just flow through this. I think there has to be something deeper that anchors you, something that reveals your faith. And I think what it should be is that it should reveal that your life is rooted and anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To know that Jesus himself went through transitions in life. Jesus transitioned from heaven into humanity and the incarnation. Jesus transitioned from life into death on the cross. Jesus transitioned three days later from death on the cross to this resurrection. And then he transitioned once again from resurrection to ascension. And that transition in the death and life, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, those transitions, that transition of Jesus' life is what anchors you in the transitions that you face.
Because when your life is rooted, it doesn't mean that everything is really easy. But when your life is rooted in Jesus, in the promises of God, as a people of God, that your identity is known as this, no matter if the circumstances change and they jilt you and they jolt you and it shakes you, yeah, it can hurt. It's unpleasant, but it'll never devastate you. It'll never crumble you. It won't be an earthquake that'll decimate the building of your life because the foundation of your life is grounded in the transitions of Jesus Christ for you. And that's what we see in verses 1 and 2. That's what we've been seeing in Nehemiah. They cast the laws and they tied the people. In verse 2, even more people went. Why would they go through this liminality? Because they knew that their identity and their purpose in life was something greater than the circumstances in which they found their lives. And in the same way, that's what it does for the people of God, to anchor our lives in Jesus and to reveal what we're really made of. And on the flip side, it tells you this. If you're always in chaos... If you're always at a loss, if you're always struggling, it's not that that's not real and human-like, but it may just give you a subtle hint that during transitions in life, you may not have a strong eternal anchor in the gospel, and your anchor is in the soil or the waters of something that's fleeting, ethereal, and temporary. And that's why you have a rootless life. And that's why it may feel like you're floating and you're blown around with every direction of the wind because you never have an anchor through the transitions and the liminalities of your experiences because transitions are revealing. Leads us to our last point. Humility can be life-giving. I almost wanted to name this third point. Self-awareness can be life-giving. It's sort of related, but let me try to make my case here. Well, one of the things you know in the list of people, as we sort of conveyed already, is that there's a lot of diversity. You know, there are leaders in verses 1 to 3. There's administrators in verse 9, temple servants in verse 3, maintenance people. Now, literally, maintenance people, there's a lot of verses about the maintenance of the temple, verse 16. You have the choir and singers, the praise team in verses 22 to 24. Even in verses 1 to 26 of chapter 12, the list are ordinary people, and Derek Kidder makes this point to say, the reason there are so many ordinary people and ordinary names and ordinary jobs is because it's a counterbalance to what history normally likes to do, where it places in prominence and writes down the names of famous people, extraordinary people, but God and the gospel doesn't work that way. Sure, there are are famous and well-known people like Nehemiah and Moses and David, but by and far, in large part, Christianity works through the ordinary regular people like you and me. And that's what the name really conveys. But there's a diversity of different people. Raymond Brown says this about the diversity. The city streets and markets were kept clean. That, properly, that proper sanitary arrangements were maintained and wise building regulations honored. Such important matters were not overlooked by Mosaic law. Because there's different gifts and different types of people. There's varying social levels, but they're all together in complete harmony working to a similar goal. That's why Raymond Brown goes on and says this, the builder's hammer, the builder's hammer was no less expressive of sincere devotion than the choir's voice in this diversity. And this is where humility can be life-giving because some of you may want to be in the choir. Some of you desperately want to be a leader. But maybe you're gifted and maybe you're called just to be a builder, or a maintainer, or a servant, or administrator. 
And sometimes the unhappiest people I find in church are those who are not very humble or self-aware to know how they've been gifted and to serve in the way that God has been gifted them and called them to do. And they spend their whole lives trying to function within the body of Jesus in a way that they're not gifted to do. And then they get angry and then they get frustrated and they get upset at leadership and upset at people around them. But it could be life-giving. If you took a moment and just set your eyes on Jesus and say, in light of the glory and grace of Christ, this is who I am, this is how I've been gifted, and this is the task that God has called me to do, and then you're set free to fly in the role that you wanted to be called, that God has called you to serve. Now, something's never changed. When I was a, a youth pastor about 15 years ago, um, you know, all the kids in my youth group, they all wanted to be the praise leader. I think times may have changed, but they all wanted to be the praise leader on the praise team, because they get to sing, they get to play an instrument, you're up, it's more public, and people get to see you. And back then, the way that we did the lyrics, it wasn't PowerPoint, it wasn't ProPresenter, it was what we called an overhead projector. Now, most of the students probably don't know an overhead projector is. It's this machine, makes this fan, and it's a loud noise, and it shines this light, and you put this thing called a transparency film, where they had lyrics on the song, and you manually move it, and it projects the lyrics all crooked onto the screen. No one ever wanted to do this. From some of you, I know you probably did this growing up, and we did it too. To make the job more attractive, we didn't call it the overheaded projector. We called it the minister of light. Who wanted to be the minister of light? But not anyone, even with that wonderful title, wanted to be the minister of light. They wanted to sing. They wanted to lead the praise team, even when they couldn't hold a rhythm and they couldn't hold a tune. And no one wanted to be the minister of light. Did you know what the hardest job on our Sunday service here is? When we gather together God's people in corporate worship, you know what the hardest, most stressful job is? It's not mine. It's not preaching. Yeah, preaching is tough. You know what it is? It's the person in the back over there doing something called ProPresenter, the 21st century modern minister of light. It's stressful. Talk to anybody who does this. But when people are finally humble and they're set free... And you find your place, whether leading praise, whether ushering in people, whether welcoming people, whether getting all the pro-presenter material and the slides getting ready, or whether you're up here reading scripture or praying, once you're humble enough to see in the light of Jesus what your role is, then and only then, you'll be able to fly. You see, friends, the point is made subtly in chapter 12, 7 through 9. It gives the names of priests, but it also says there in verse 9, in verse 7, these were the chief, uh, chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. In one translation in verse 7 that, that says their brothers is also uh, known as associates. So you have names that are listed, and then you have this other group that are just grouped in together. You have the famous people, and you have brothers. You have the associates. The associates, their names weren't listed, but their work was remembered. Because that's the story of Christianity, something far more than great names and events. Christianity is much less about the names listed in 7 to 9 and much more about the associates and the brothers in the days of Jeshua. It's about the millions of unremembered but committed believers who serve faithfully behind the scenes. 
It's about the ordinary church members, forgotten pastors, the evangelists who evangelized 100 times a day and always got rejected. It's the Bible study leaders, the Sunday school teachers, the caterers of the food, the cleaners of the building, the undaunted prayer warriors and intercessors of the church. These are the people that their names will never be in the book of life, but their work will be, and that's all that matters because they serve for the glory of God and not themselves because they have a humility about them to serve in the place that God has called them. These were the people who were content being associates, whether known or not. They serve for the glory of God and not the glory of their own name. They have a self-awareness about who they are in their identity and self-worth, and they live that out. Ann Landers once said about, uh, in an article about uh, self-awareness and humility, she says, know yourself. Don't accept your dog's admiration as conclusive evidence that you are wonderful. If you're only listening to people who like you, you're never going to figure out who you are, and you'll never have self-awareness, and you'll never have a level of humility, and then you'll never be able to have a life-giving place in the church in this world. Tim Keller has said, you don't know yourself unless you know yourself in relationship to God. And he's absolutely right. It's what this theologian John Calvin says. There's a double knowledge about humanity. God created humans in his image. We image forth God. The way that you know yourself better is to know God. The way that you know God better is to know yourself. It's this back and forth relationship that we call a covenant. And that's exactly what captures the entire book of Nehemiah. The reason that Nehemiah in verses 1 to 2 the people were able to tie the people, but also have in verse 2, more people go, is because they knew themselves in relationship to God in this covenant. God was their God. They were his people. God was their father. They were his children. God was their savior. They were in need of saving. In order for us to know ourselves, we have to communicate and look beyond ourselves. The Bible shows us Jesus offering a clear perspective on who we are in light of the gospel, our sins, our brokenness, our giftedness, our love, our sense of being justified and sanctified. So instead of focusing so heavily on how we see ourselves or how other people view us, we need to shift our focus to Jesus and what he's done for us. He'll tell you what you're really like. Because spiritual self-awareness is Christ-centered and Christ-led. The world's idea of self-awareness is self-centered and self-led. The world's way will make you self-concentrated and make you prideful. But Jesus' way will bring clarity. And to have true humility and self-awareness, you've got to look at your Savior Jesus in light of his glory, in light of his light, in light of his grace, and then and only then you'll see what you're really about. It's what Paul basically talks about in Galatians 2.20, about this idea of being identified having self-awareness. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If that captures your heart, if the Spirit takes that truth to say that you no longer are your old self, but now you live by faith in the Son of God, it is no longer I live, but I now live as a Son of God my faith in Jesus who lives in me and loves me and gave himself for me. Then and only then will you have the humility to see all your shortcomings and sins, to have the humility and self-awareness of how you've been created and been gifted, and the humility to be able to serve, just like it says in chapter 12, verse 7, the associates and the brothers. 
And then you'll be life-giving and have a sense in which you are walking in this life free. And that's what the Bible and the gospel offers. Friends, let's turn to the Lord and pray with me at this time.